Well, welcome to Church Online. My name is Pete, pastor here at Destiny, and it's a joy to, in these next few moments, unpack with you some thoughts, specifically today in our Love and Lockdown series. We're going to be looking at the subject of parenting, which is a hugely challenging subject for every single one of us. So whether you're a parent or not, I think you're going to learn something that's going to really help you today. Uh, let's pray and ask God to, to help us. So just where you are, pray with me. Father, thank you so much that you are God, that you are a God who loves us and you're called Father and we get to call you Father God. Even though you are so huge, so incredible and yet you're so familiar, we can call you Father. I pray for every person joining me today, God, you know them, you know their lives, you know their challenges, you are where they are right now and I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would challenge us when necessary, you'd encourage us, you'd redirect us, you'd fill us with truth that will help us and equip us to be great humans, but also to be great parents and to lead the next generation strongly into their destiny. We agree in this and ask you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I, uh, I'm 44 years old and I remember way back in 2001 being passed this bundle, Becky. Uh, I, I was besotted. I, we, we, we didn't know if it was a girl or a boy. In fact, I was suspicious, oh, it's going to be a boy. And then we were past a little girl. I remember being past Becky for the first time and I was just utterly besotted. Um, but you're also highly aware, wow, she's so fragile. I was trying to do everything I could just to hold her neck so that her head wasn't flopping around the place. And uh, I remember the moment when we were, you know, we had to leave the hospital. <laughs> I thought to myself, the nurses are nurses are you sure you just, just let us leave like there's no manual for this there's no you've never done this before you felt so completely out your depth and I remember putting her into the car seat for the first time you're like double checking all the straps making sure everything's solid you're driving super carefully you're just so alert to wow this is a fragile child um, and then I remember 2003 Michael came along it, oh, I was just blown away to have a little boy and this time we were a little bit more chilled out. <laughs> we weren't so paranoid about him and, uh, you know, shoved him in the car, strap yourself in and <laughs> drove home. Uh, but but it, was, it was just such a kind of out your death, depth, ex- well, yeah, depth experience. And, uh, but here I am now, Michael's 17, Becky's 19, and I'm not teaching them to drive. Wow, that's another whole level of scary. And I, I'm sitting there in the passenger seat, hand hovering over the handbrake, just in case, just in case we need it. And uh, the question I've got is, how on earth do you get them from the car seat to the driver's seat successfully? Because I have to tell you, I haven't always felt like a success. It's been a, an amazing journey, and it's also been an utterly challenging journey. We've had the heights of joy, but we've also had times of great despair. I'm being honest. It hasn't always been easy. And you're aware of that as well. We're also aware of our shortcomings as parents, our brokenness. We're trying to raise these kids in, in a world that's broken. And we're trying to help them walk strong and have a great future ahead of them. It's not easy. So what do we do? Well, we turn to the Bible. Because the Bible's got wisdom from God, right? But when we turn to the Bible, what we see in the Bible is just a pile of examples of how not to parent. It's just full of terrible, terrible parenting advice. That's the problem. So right from the very first family, Adam and Eve, well, they sinned and the entire world came under a curse. That was a bad start. 
Genesis chapter 4, the next chapter after sin came into the world, Cain murdered Abel. Adam and Eve kids killed each other. I mean, I know our kids threatened to do it, but their kids actually did it. That's a pretty dysfunctional family. And that's how it began on planet Earth. And all the way through the Bible, you've got a story of one messed up family after the other. I mean, you just see them all. You see Abraham had an unwanted child, Ishmael. You see Jacob's sons, man, they sold their brother, Joseph, into slavery. You see David's family. That was a messed up family. There's adultery, murder, incest, and mutiny going on all in that family. So the Bible gives us a pile of examples of pretty messed up. You've actually got to look really hard to find a good example of parenting in the Bible. See, here's the problem, right? The problem with parenting is parents and kids. The problem with parenting is that parents are sinners. And the problem with parenting is that kids are sinners. In fact, that's the problem with the world. Uh, About 100 years ago, the Times newspaper in London uh, published a series of articles where they asked questions and invited people to contribute their answers. And one week, their question was, what's wrong with the world? And one guy, famous Catholic thinker, G.K. Chesterton, he replied to the question with the answer. And this is what he replied, and it was published in the newspaper. He replied to the question, what's wrong with the world? He said, dear sirs, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And he got it absolutely right. See, the problem isn't out there. The problem, folks, is in here. We're sinners. Now, being sinners, we need a big answer. And that's where the Bible gives us the biggest answer of all. You see, the bad news is we're sinners, but the good news, and the word good news is the word gospel, say gospel, okay? The, the word good, good news means is the word gospel, and that's what we need to understand as parents. So if I was a missionary in a foreign country where I didn't speak the language, I might do what other missionaries have done when they've gone to tribes or peoples where they didn't speak the same language, they use a thing called the wordless book to describe the gospel. Let me, let me do it for you, okay? They would have a four-page book. Each page is a different color. So page number one is black. And they would say, okay, black, this is, this is the start, this is the gospel, this is the message, okay? The message of Christianity. No, first of all, black. Black means we're sinners. The problem's not out there, the problem's in here. What's the problem with the world? I am. We're sinners, Then they turn the page to the next page, which is red. And red represents God did something for sinners. 2,000 years ago, we believe Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners. Now, he wasn't a sinner, but he was the only one who lived without sin and died as a sinless substitute for the sinful world. His blood cleanses our sin. That's the good news of what, that's the bad news that we're sinners. The good news is that Jesus died for sinners. And then having died for sinners, we turn to the next page, which is the white page. And the white page declared to tells us this, that because us sinners had a price paid for us, blood was shed, the Bible says you, de- you get to be righteous. You get to be white, cleansed, forgiven, totally accepted. The, it's not like all of a sudden we start behaving better because we sometimes don't but that our sins have been declared forgiven, that we've been declared righteous before a holy God because God sees us through the blood that was shed at Calvary. 
you are declared righteous and forgiven forever. And that leads to the last page, gold. Gold represents eternity. Gold represents the realm of God. That because us sinners had a price paid for us, we've trusted in Jesus' blood. We're declared righteous. And instead of paying the price for our sin, like we should, because our sins were bad, instead of going to hell, we get to go to heaven. We get to be acceptable to God in this life and in eternity. That's the message. And that's how often missionaries would describe it to people. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That includes you. You, sinner. Me, sinner. We trust in the blood that was shed 2,000 years ago and in the resurrection of Jesus. You're declared righteous by trusting in Jesus. And you enter into this relationship with God which lasts forever. Maybe today, you think, oh, Peter, this is a parenting talk. I know, but I'm talking to you first. You need to get right with God. And if you're not right with God, why wait another day without making that relationship right with God? And I'll give you the opportunity to do this at the end of the message. But, okay, so Peter, how on earth does this have anything to do with parenting? Well, I said earlier, the problem with parenting is parents and, and kids. And the, and the problem is that parents are sinners and kids are sinners. So sinners are raising sinners. So what's the answer to parenting? Well, it's the answer is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for us. So my question then is, okay, that if that's the case, how then as parents do we apply the gospel and it become a foundation, a bedrock on which we can raise our kids? Because now you're talking, that's how sinners raise sinners successfully. And we can raise people into the great adults and human beings they were intended to be through this thing called the gospel. Okay, and that now takes me to the only or one of the few examples I could find in the Bible of good parenting. Now, when I say good parenting, it was an imperfect situation. It was a single parent mum. The dad was absent. And yet she did a fantastic job of parenting. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says to his friend Timothy, who's now a great leader. But this is what he says about his upbringing. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. I'm reminded of the sincere faith. Say that word, sincere faith. Which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. See, we don't see many references in the New Testament to Timothy's dad, other than he was an unreligious man, a, a, a non-follower of God. And quite frankly, we're not, we don't know even if he was around. We, for all we know, Timothy was raised in a single parent family. And Eunice did a fantastic job of raising Timothy because he's now an adult. He's a successful adult. Imperfect situation, sure, but good parenting. Another verse Paul refers to in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He says, continue to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. So obviously, Timothy's become convinced of certain things. He's got certain convictions. Because you know from those whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, which can make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's the point. Lois and Eunice, Timothy's grandmother and mum, were raising Timothy, pointing Timothy to this thing called the gospel, that you're a sinner, that Jesus paid the price for sinners, that you've been declared righteous, now you can live in the realm of God, and that through trusting in Jesus, actually it becomes a bedrock for your entire life. Let me explain how this works as for parenting. 
Let me break it down to six points. Point number one, show them authentic faith, not shallow religion. Show them authentic faith, not shallow religion. Way back in the 19th century, there was a Jewish boy in a Jewish family and his dad had decided that they would no longer go to the synagogue, but instead they were going to go to the Lutheran church and they were going to kind of give up on their traditional religion. The Jewish boy asked his father, why is it we must start attend, surrender our Jewish faith and start attending Lutheran services in Germany? The father replied to him, son, we must abandon our faith so that the people will accept us and will support our business. The boy never overcame his disappointment in his father or in the shallowness of religion. This boy grew up and in his 30s, he wrote a famous book called The Communist Manifesto. His name is Karl Marx. Because of the influence of Karl Marx, Marxist Leninist ideology ruins the lives for 70 years on earth of billions of people under communistic regimes who faced imprisonment, misery, confusion, and hopelessness, all because of the hypocrisy of a father. He was shown shallow religion. In contrast, in the 18th century, the world in, in the UK certainly was in a bad place. Britain was in disarray. Policing was scarce. Gangs roamed free. And as a result of the fear, many people did not go out after dark. But at that time, a couple... Samuel and Susanna Wesley had 19 kids. <laughs> I guess if you can't go out after dark, you've not got much else to do. <laughs> Only eight of them survived, and they lived in poverty most of their lives. In fact, Samuel often uh, wasn't, a good, wasn't actually a good dad, and at times he, he lived away from them for several years. So Susanna was left to raise these kids, a lot of them, by herself. And Susanna did a meticulous job. She spent an hour a day praying for her kids, she took each child aside every week for one hour and gave them focused discussion time over spiritual matters and conviction matters. The name of her famous son was John Wesley. And this is what John Wesley said about his mum. I've learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all the theologians in England. John Wesley went on to become a great reformer. He traveled quarter of a million miles by horseback. He preached 46,000 sermons up and down the length and the breadth of the British Isles. But here's the thing. Britain was on course for a revolution, just like happened in France with the French Revolution. But secular historians say that through the influence of John Wesley and the other companions of his, the reformers, Britain was literally diverted from that course and was rescued from a bloody revolution. You need to understand, folks, when people are exposed to authentic faith, it not only impacts them, but it gives them a foundation but it also enables them to become an influencer in the world. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Do you know what? Sincere faith is contagious. Kids are longing for authentic Christianity. Kids, parents, stop faking it. Have, be the real deal. Walk with God authentically, not just in public, but behind the scenes. Live this life. You might not be perfect, sure, but demonstrate true faith. They long for authenticity. They long for something that's real. They don't want theoretical Christianity. They want real Christianity. I remember every night since my kids have been born, every night, Becky's at uni now, so I can't do it with her. But my son, every day I lay hands on him. I place my hand on his head 
and I pray for a blessing upon them. Why? Because I want them to not just know about God, I want them to feel the presence of God. I want them to have experiences with this God, not just know stuff about this God. Authentic faith. Point number two, teach them humble God confidence, not proud self-confidence. A healthy self-esteem. A healthy self-esteem is seeing yourself the way God sees you. Nothing more, nothing less. <laughs> a woman uh, phones her husband at work one day and said, Honey, uh, are you free for a chat? I said, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm up to my neck. I've got so many meetings and deadlines. Uh, do you mind if we chat later on? I said, well, listen, I've got good news and bad news for you. I said, well, listen, I'm so busy. Just tell me the good news. I'll hear the bad news later. She said, okay. Uh, the good news is the airbags work fantastically. <laughs> Good news and bad news. And again, it's like that, the gospel, right? To understand the good news, we've got to first appreciate the bad news. And here's a verse that describes both the good news and the bad news for us as human beings. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And this helps with your self-esteem. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so right in that verse, it tells us something devastating about you and tells us something devastating about me we're sinners, all right? You're not perfect. You are a sinner in the sight of God. I am a sinner in the sight of God. Okay, we're sinners. That's what it tells us. That's devastating. So when, when the world tells, tell your kids that nothing's wrong, no, that's a lie. They're sinners, okay? It's a lie. They're sinners. Don't believe me. Just try raising kids. They're wicked. They're sinners. Okay, they're sinners. The Bible says that. So don't deny that. Don't say, oh, everything's fine when it's not fine. It's not fine. We're there's a problem. We have a problem in our soul. It's a moral problem. We're a problem with God. But here's the good news. The good news is, and you appreciate the good news because you understand the bad news, the good news is that God died for sinners. Jesus paid the price for sinners. God loves us that much. He died for sinners. So what does this do to your self-esteem? It does wonders for your self-esteem. It gives you a humble God confidence, not a proud self-confidence. See, when you realize that you were so sinful that the Son of God had to die for you, you are humbled to the dust. And while at the same time, when you realize that you were so loved that God willingly died for you, you are affirmed and valued to the sky. Humbled out of the pride that makes you look down on others and affirmed to the point where you stop looking down on yourself. That, my friends, is a balanced ego, a good self-esteem, a humble confidence based on total realism but total acceptance before God you see the cross will result in the death of superiority and the death of inferiority it gives you balance in your life Romans 8 31 and 32 it gives you this robustness listen to what it says if God is for us who is against us he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all how will he not with him also freely give us all things God's for you. Who can be against you? You are literally unrejectable. That's how robust it makes you in life. When you understand what God has done for you, you're unrejectable. All of a sudden, yeah, you still care what people think, but not the same. You see, I'm unrejectable. You might not like me, but God likes me. So I'm okay. It makes you strong. The gospel fortifies your life. I, I, you know, growing, my kids growing up, I, I, I shared the gospel with them every night. Every night I told them about the good news and the bad news and what Jesus had done for them. 
I pray that with them all the time. All, you ask my kids, every night I thank God for his death and resurrection for them. For them, it's the foundation. In fact, from a young age, because I shared it all the time, from a young age, my kids, with authentic faith, put their trust. and became, I remember leading both my kids to faith in Jesus as they were growing up. I remember, what, I remember the night for both of them. Incredible. And every day, even now, years later, since they've come to faith, I still tell them every day, do you know what? God is for you and God is with you every day. And what a, what a strength it gives them in their souls. Thirdly, live out the gospel for them to see. Live out the gospel for them to see. Okay, how does that look? Well, be quick to apologize. Because broken parents, right? That's the problem with parenting, broken parents. So parents, we're going to mess up. You're going to mess up. You might speak, I might speak to my wife badly. Well, in that moment, I not only ask forgiveness for, honey, forgive me for how I spoke to you. I have a responsibility to then go to my kids. Do you know what, kids? The way I spoke to your mum really wasn't right. I'm, I'm so sorry. Do you know, kids can handle broken parents. They can handle it. What they can't handle is lack of repentance. See, if, if all they see is brokenness, then they end up with resentment and disillusionment as they get older because they just saw the brokenness and they never heard repentance. They never saw humility. They never saw repentance. But if you model, if, if the, yeah, you don't need to model your brokenness. That will come naturally. But if you can model the gospel in the midst of your brokenness, I'm telling you, it will give them a foundation because then when they get older, they'll be quick to forgive. It will stop them from being hard-hearted. It will stop them from being disillusioned. It will stop them from being cynical. Also, be quick to forgive. Be quick to apologize, sure, but be, be quick to forgive. It says in um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The foundation of my ability just to forgive. I mean, how can I just, just forgive? Well, because God just forgave me. I mean, that's, that's, that's my foundation. How, how could I, in fact, put it this way, how could I not just forgive, considering that God forgave me? I mean, if he forgave me, the inexcusable, how can I not forgive others, the inexcusable in them? Of course. So, forgive. Someone said that when my wife gets mad, she gets historical. And they said, no, no, you mean hysterical. No, no, I mean historical. She goes back and reminds me of all the things that I'd done in the past, okay? And that's what we're talking about not doing, okay? When you forgive, you properly forgive. You no longer interact with them on that basis anymore. You, you don't keep a record of wrongs because that's exactly how God forgives us. Folks, this is the stuff that will build strong kids. If you just keep hanging over them, their mistakes, rather than properly forgiving, you're thinking you're motivating them, you're demotivating them, and you are not communicating the gospel. You're communicating religious legalism. Communicate the gospel. Number four, are you okay? Let's hang in there. This is going to be helpful. Number four, sinners raising sinners. Number four, define them by their destiny, not by their history. I mean, how many people have grown up hearing, you were a mistake. I wish you were more like your brother. You're stupid. You're so lazy. Hearing those things so many times, and you could, you could quote me the things you were told so many times that even though initially you don't believe it, it's not long before you start believing it. In fact, when you start seeing your own flaws, you start saying, I am stupid. I am just like my brother. And you start saying the things over your own life. Your identity is now starting to be based on your history rather than your destiny. Here's the thing. That's what the devil does. The devil knows your destiny but calls you by your history. God knows your history, but called you by your destiny. I love how God interacts with 
that great leader of the Old Testament, Gideon. Before he was ever a great leader, when he was just a nobody, God came and spoke to him. This is what he said to him. Judges chapter 6, verse 12. The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. (laughs) It's so ironic because Gideon hadn't fought one single battle. He had no military reputation. No one would have seen him in that way. He was just Gideon. He wasn't a mighty warrior. He hadn't led any military campaigns. He had no military training. And yet God declared his identity was based on his destiny not in his history. And if you watch the story, it wasn't long before he started acting like a mighty warrior, because God wants to define your destiny. When I was born, mum called me Peter. And she deliberately called me Peter because in her mind was Peter, the fisherman, that apostle of Jesus, who went on to become a a real foundational individual who helped establish churches and promote the church. And mum just had a sense, God wants me to be part of him advancing his church on earth. And that's why she called me Peter. I guess growing up, she would have been looking at me thinking, (laughs) did I get that one wrong? Because I'm telling you, I was so disinterested in church as a kid. I got up to all sorts of mischief and often my mum caught me getting up to mischief. And she must have thought many times, really, did I get that one right? But she kept calling me Peter. And I started aligning with the destiny God had called me to. God, called you by your destiny. And you know, again, going back to the cross, this is exactly what God did. You know that you've heard of the crime identity theft, when someone steals your identity and then maybe uses your credit cards or uses your identity to amass debt against your account in order to get something from you. Well, you imagine identity theft in reverse. That's what happened on the cross. You see, what happened on the cross is Jesus on the cross assumed your identity, my identity. He took our sin upon himself. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, Jesus became our sin. He became like a sinner. He assumed our identity, not to amass debt against us, the opposite, to clear our debt and to credit to our account his righteousness. He took our sin, we get his righteousness. It's identity theft in reverse. And so that now in Jesus Christ, God doesn't call you by your sin. He declares you righteous. He declares you a new creation. So see when your kids lie, don't say you're a liar. Say, hey, you lied. That's not who you are. Come on, God's got better for you. If your kid is acting lazy, don't say you lazy fool or whatever. You're a lazy son. Don't call them. Don't declare that as a destiny. Say, you're acting lazy, but that's not who you are. That's not what you're destined to be. Call the best out of them. Number five, train them in the way they should go. The famous verse, Proverbs 22, verse six, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Derek Kidner, who's a a Bible commentator, comments on this verse. And when it says, train up a child in the way he should go, it literally translates according to his way, acknowledging his individuality and his particular unique calling. In other words, it's not talking about raise them in good morals. It's not saying that. It's saying, figure out the way that God's wired them, figure out the gifting and the calling that's in them, and then start raising them that way. In the 18th century, there was a 
a famous artist called Benjamin West, who was largely responsible for the establishment of the Royal Academy of Arts in London, the RA in London. Well, Benjamin West tells how he became a painter. He was the 10th child of an innkeeper and his wife. And one day his mum went out leaving Benjamin in charge of his younger sister, Sally. While his mum was out, he was at home alone with Sally. He discovered bottles of coloured ink and began to paint Sally's portrait. Now, the ink went everywhere. He made a colossal mess. But when his mum came home, instead of focusing on the mess, instead of rebuking her son for the mess, she picked up the piece of paper, saw that it was a drawing of Sally, a painting of Sally. And he said, why? It's Sally. This is amazing. And then she stooped down and kissed him. Afterwards, Benjamin West, as an adult, said this. He always used to say, my mother's kiss made me a painter. You've got to train up the child in the way they should go. Figure out how they're wired. Figure out the unique destiny God's got for them and start drawing that out of them. Start calling that forth. Start declaring that over them. You see, the Bible says, and this is where it's linked to the gospel, Ephesians 2 verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, you're not saved by your good works. You're saved by his good works for you. You're saved by trusting in Jesus. For you are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Listen, the Bible's clear. You're not saved by works, but you are saved for works. You're saved by faith to a life that makes a difference. And here's the question. God, you're God's handiwork. What has God created you? What is the plan that God has for you? What is the unique set of works? What's the calling that God's got? Listen, stop trying to live your destiny through your kids. If you're athletic and you think, come on, kids, get more athletic. Come on, stop. They're different. Stop. You're academic, or you think you are, right? You can't even spell the word, okay? But you're trying to get your kids to be all academic. Listen, dudes, just cheer them on. Get them to be the best version of them, the one that God's wired them to be. Look for the natural flow that God has placed in their life. Look how God has wired them and call that out. I've never put any pressure on Becky or Michael to be like me or to do what I do or to do it. Do you know what? There's no pressure on them to go to university because I don't care if my, oh, I'm seen to have my kids going to university. Becky's going to university. Michael doesn't want to go to university. No problem. There's no pressure on them to earn a certain level of money. You need to be earning this or you need to be proving yourself in this way. No pressure. All I ask is I encourage them, do what God wants you to do. Whatever you're going to do, don't be lazy. Work at it with all your heart. Be the best them they can be and have a plan. That's what I encourage them to do. But no pressure on them to live out my destiny. I've got a different destiny. They've got a different destiny. Encourage them to be everything God intended them to be. And then finally, number six, teach them that life is bigger than this life. This is so important. Teach them that life is bigger than this life. Challenge the narrative of the day, folks. You see, the world around us is telling us and telling our kids, live for yourself. The world around you is telling, live for now, live for money, live for comfort and pleasure, live for your retirement even. That's how the world wants to put you into this mold. What a horrible, narrow-minded mold. What a restrictive mold. What a soul-deadening mold. Don't live for yourself. Don't live for the now. Life is bigger than this life, and life is more important. God is more important than you and me. This is so important to raise our kids this way. Where did 
Timothy's sincere faith get him? He actually died as a martyr. The story goes that in 97 AD, Timothy, he was in Ephesus, and on that particular day, there was a pagan festival in honor of the goddess Dionysius, in which the participants would dress in costumes, masks, and partake in sexual immorality and even murder. It was recorded that Timothy stood in front of this parade and exhorted them saying, men of Ephesus, do not be mad for idols, but acknowledge the one who truly is God. At this, the revelers attacked Timothy and beat him with clubs, and the beating was so severe that two days later he died from his injuries. So, do you think Eunice, his mum, would be proud of her son? Or do you think, oh, that's a wasted life? See, would you be proud if your kids took serious flack for their convictions? Might not die of beating like Timothy. Maybe we're in a different culture. But would you be proud of them if they, wow, they really took flack? They became very unpopular because of good convictions. Would you be proud if they got fired from their job for speaking the truth? Would you be proud of them? I would. Would you be proud of them if they were demoted for not towing the party line, not going with that agenda that they just knew was wrong and worked, but they chose to go God's way and as a result, they were demoted? Or would you be proud of them if they left their career to pursue a sense of higher calling that God had for them? Would you be proud of them? I would. Jesus said, Matthew 16, verse 25, but whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? You want your kids to have the best life. Encourage them with passion. In fact, you model it as well. Encourage them with passion to live for God with everything that's within them. You try and hold on to this life, it's the very thing you lose. Don't hold it too tight. But if you lose your life, and that doesn't mean you become a martyr, but it means you're just living a life that's bigger than you. You're living for the glory of God. You're living for the blessing of others. Then all of a sudden, you know the one who benefits? You. Teach your kids that. Live that in front of them. That's the gospel. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you so much. Lord Jesus, you give us a different version of how to raise our kids. And it's so much better than what the world offers us. It's a, it's a way, it's a conviction way, it's a way of, it's a way that makes a difference. And it's a way that truly brings the best out in us and in our kids. Thank you for the gospel, Jesus. Thank you for paying the price for us sinners. Thank you for rising again on the third day. Okay, parents, just take a moment, if you're a parent, take a moment to pray and respond to what you've heard. Maybe there's something specific I've shared that you think, do you know what, I want to work on that. I want to make sure I, I remember that. Just take a moment to seal that. Decide on it. Draw a line. Make a decision before God. Just now. go for it. While, while people are praying, it might be today that you're joining and you're not yet connected with God. I'm so chuffed that you're on this broadcast today. And I believe God's brought you here because he wants to save your soul. I can't do it for you, but right now God is with you. And I invite you to pray a prayer to him and ask him to be your saviour. And that the good news would become your good news. That you are a sinner. Jesus died for you on the cross. His death and resurrection, that blood cleanses you from sin. And by trusting him, you come into this relationship with him. Let's pray. Pray this with me, one line at a time. Dear God, thank you for loving me. Jesus, thank you for dying in my place. 
so that I can be forgiven and have eternal life. I believe you rose from the dead. Take first place in my heart and life. I declare Jesus is Lord of my life from now on. Thank you, God, for hearing my prayer. Amen. God's heard you. Right now, he's heard you. And if you prayed that prayer, you're saved. He's just saved your soul. The best news ever. If you prayed that prayer, we would love to help you. Now, this is a really important thing you've done do everything we can as a church to help you on this journey. If you prayed the prayer, if you're on our website platform, click the I prayed the prayer button. If you're on Facebook or YouTube, you can either message us through that platform or send us an email. Or if you're listening to the podcast in retrospect, send us a message. Let us know because we want to do everything we can to help you. God bless you. Let's worship God.